The first time that a lawyer got involved in a sit-in movement was also the first time that a sit-in was involved in a movement to change the law. In 1939, Samuel Wilbur Tucker saw the sit-in as a surefire way to push for change. Samuel Tucker attended Howard University as an undergraduate student, but he became a lawyer not by attending law school, but instead by another method of preparing for the bar exam that was then quite common. Tucker's father was a real estate agent who shared office space with a lawyer named Tom Watson. After graduating from Howard, young Sam began studying Watson's law books, and he was tutored by Watson. This form of self-study under the tutelage of a licensed attorney was called reading the law. He had to wait until he was 21, however, and when he reached the legal age, in 1934, Samuel Wilbur Tucker passed the Virginia bar exam and became a lawyer. His chosen field of practice was shaped by an experience that he'd had just seven years earlier. When Tucker was 14, he was asked to give up his seat on a streetcar when ordered by a white female passenger. He refused. He was arrested. He was charged with disorderly conduct. He was fined $5. But most importantly, he never forgot. The libraries in Alexandria, Virginia did not issue library cards to its Negro citizens. After becoming a lawyer, Tucker wanted to change that, and he recruited 11 young men and taught them exactly what to do. His strategy was straightforward. Go into the library and ask for an application for a library card. When refused, take a book off the shelf, sit down, and read. Be courteous and read quietly. Do not sit at the same table. Tucker wanted to make sure that if they were arrested, and they would be, that any charge of disorderly conduct could be easily disproven. On Monday, August 21st, 1939, five of Tucker's 11 recruits, William Evans, Otto Tucker, Edward Gaddis, Morris Murray, and Clarence Strange entered the library on Queen Street, and each were denied an application. Each sat down and read, and each were arrested for disorderly conduct. At the trial, Tucker was able to get to the heart of the matter. Were they destroying property? Tucker asked the arresting officer. No, the policeman replied. Were they properly attired? The lawyer persisted. Yes, said the officer. Were they quiet? Yes, the officer responded. Tucker paused, then pounced. So then they were disorderly only because they were black, he insisted. The officer then admitted that the only disorder in question was because the men were members of the black race and the library was for white people. By 1960, that same disorder was on the mind of Franklin McCain and his friends at North Carolina A&T College, and the four young men were determined to do something about it. 
On February 1st, 1960, it really represents a uh, milestone in my life. Uh, my colleagues, Joseph McNeil, the late David Richmond, and Isaiah Blair, had uh, been discussing democracy and the lack of it in this country, particularly as it relates to African Americans. And we had uh, chewed on the subject since September of the previous year, 1959 and thought that democracy as practice, for the most part, was a real hypocrisy, particularly related to African-Americans. And we wondered why our parents hadn't taken a stand. We determined that we were responsible for achieving our manhood, our dignity, and we had to do something about it. Now, who knows if the four young men ever heard of Samuel Tucker or the Green Street Library in Alexandria, Virginia. But what they decided to do that winter morning in North Carolina was a sit-in all their own. We decided on Sunday night, January 31st, about, well, actually it wasn't Sunday, Sunday night, it was already Monday morning. It must have been about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning on February 1st, that we were going to go to Woolworth sit down and demand to be served at the lunch counter. You could shop at 43 counters, but number 44, which was a lunch counter, was off limits to you if you were African American. So that Monday, February 1st, 1960, the four young men, Franklin McCain, Joseph McNeil, David Richmond, and Ezel Blair, made their way to downtown Greensboro, and at around 4.30 that afternoon, they entered 132 South Elm Street, the Woolworth Building, and made their way to the lunch counter. Now, given the racially charged atmosphere of the American South during that time, one had to be concerned with a great many things, not the least of which was your own physical safety. I certainly wasn't afraid. And I wasn't afraid because I was too angry to be afraid. If I were lucky, I would be carted off to jail for a long, long time. And if I were not so lucky, then I would be going back to my campus in a pine box. There would be no violence, but there was a forceful presence that was even stronger. Fifteen seconds after I sat on that stool, I had the most wonderful feeling. I had a feeling of liberation, restored manhood. I had a natural high, and I truly felt almost invincible. An elderly white woman had been sitting nearby, and she observed the events as they unfolded. She heard the manager tell the young men they were not welcome and she saw the police officer tapping his hands with his nightstick. Shortly after, she walked over to where the young men were sitting, gently leaned in. She whispered in a calm voice, Boys, I am so proud of you. What I learned from that little incident was that don't you ever, ever stereotype anybody in this life until you at least experience them and have the opportunity to talk to them. 
The actions of the Greensboro Four, as they would come to be known, spread like wildfire. And within two months, 54 cities in nine states, like Durham and Charlotte, North Carolina, Hampton and Portsmouth, Virginia, Nashville and Chattanooga, Tennessee, Atlanta and Savannah, Georgia, Orangeburg and Columbia, South Carolina, and New Orleans and Baton Rouge, Louisiana, just to name a few, all would join the combustion of college-led activism. Even though we hadn't been served, I felt a true sense of victory. And I felt a true sense of victory because we had what I thought was outwitted the opposition. And we had pressed them in a corner where they didn't know what to do. Although they were separated by 300 miles and two decades, the actions of the Library Five and the Greensboro Four were connected by one common idea. If there's something that you want to do and in your heart, you know that it needs to be changed, modified, or turned upside down. Go ahead and do it. Don't follow your head. Don't follow your heart. Follow your gut. But don't wait for anybody. Because, first of all, they won't come. Because it is you. You've got the vision. And you've got the faith and the confidence in yourself that you know that you can make it happen. But if you continue to wait, all the masses will do is pull you down and discourage you and give you all the reasons that it won't work. Oh, whatever happened to the Library Five? Well, their case never came to any real resolution. The judge did not want to have an official record, so he decided to set the case for another day, and he just never brought it up again. That left the five young men with a criminal charge dangling over their heads for decades. But in October 2019, a court in Alexandria, Virginia dismissed the charges finding that the young men had not broken any laws and instead were lawfully exercising their constitutional rights to free assembly, speech, and to petition the government to alter the established policy of sanctioned segregation. After 80 years, the case against them was finally dismissed. The sit-ins were a major force in producing the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But as a form of protest, it harkens back to the late 1930s. And a debt of gratitude is owed to a lawyer who first used the form of protest as a way to bring about change. Samuel Wilbert Tucker, a hidden legal figure who changed America. on the next Hidden Legal Figures. I really try to capture this, this volatile mix of hopefulness and frustration. And if you look at how these students described why they actually just got so fed up that they went down there and joined these protests, uh, they talk about being frustrated a lot. They talk about being frustrated with promises that weren't followed through. They talk about frustration sometimes with uh, the more established civil rights organizations, sometimes with their parents and grandparents' generations. 
who they say they tried things like litigation and lobbying and going through the formal processes, uh, and that didn't work. So we need to try something new. In 1960, society was changing to the extent that the students who took part in these protests, they didn't know what was going to happen, right? They didn't know if they were going to get thrown in jail. They didn't know if they were going to get attacked and abused. And all this happened to different people involved in the protests. But it is important to note that the vast majority of people who took part in the sit-in protests were not arrested and they were not uh, beaten up. They took part in a protest, they shut down restaurants, and then they went home at the end of the day because there are tens of thousands of people involved in these protests. That kind of response in which they could actually get this protest, get sympathetic reaction from around the country, because a lot of people around the country may be a little skeptical about the particular tactic, but in terms of what they were fighting for, uh, they had pretty strong support that simply would not have happened if they had tried to launch these protests, say, 20 years earlier. So they might have been frustrated that their parents didn't do this, that they need to go do this because their parents didn't, sometimes these students would say. Um, they just were in a different era, and there were possibilities for change. There's a lot of moral progress throughout our country's history that has been won by changing laws, by lawyers making powerful arguments in court. The students had as powerful a moral claim as any modern protest movement has had. And for many people, it resonated. Again, this is something that most people around the country said their cause is a just one. I'm Christopher Schmidt. Join me next time on Hidden Legal Figures to discuss my book, The Sit-Ins, Protests and Legal Change in the Civil Rights Era. Do you want to book the Hidden Legal Figures podcast for a live event hosted by attorney Derek Alexander Pope? Visit www.onthearc.net.